Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. I'm a sexaholic. And uh, through the grace of God and the fellowship of this wonderful program, I've been privileged to be sober since the 7th uh, of February, 1983, one day at a time, for which I'm never sufficiently grateful. And um, I was told this was a very important meeting by one of your trusted servants here at the local level in Sacramento. And so, of course, I feel a great weight of the ages and the sages who will help me to say what needs to be said to the newcomer, that perfect formula that is going to get them sober the very first time they come to the meeting. And, of course, that, hi, Sylvia, that is totally a God deal. But how do we assist God? That's sort of um, how I look at it. I've, um, uh, of course, uh, being that I've been in the rooms a little while, I've seen a lot of people come and go. And... Um, I still try to do a certain amount of 12-step work in the other rooms that I go to, and um, I never expect too much uh, in in those um, situations. Uh, But I know that um, recently I talked to a woman I personally 12-stepped about three or four years ago, and I know that she is um, probably still in the same place that she was or appears to be. And she told me she could never go to an SA meeting because her drugs are there, the men. You know, her drugs are there. I'm not going. I can't do that. That would never work for me. Um, And I can't get another person ready, you know, for the program. Um, And I can't do much about the fact that um, the majority of people who come to SA tend to be men. Um, I don't really think that that necessarily reflects the disease so much as the way it manifests a little bit differently with men and women. So maybe I'll spend a minute talking about my understanding about that. And anything I've said here, I, I don't think I've ma- uh, anything is for me. It's all what I heard in a meeting. Um, one of our friends a few years ago <clears throat> shared at a conference that he felt that um, lust had kind of three general manifestations um, and one of them is just, for lack of a better word, just, just the straight lust, you know, just take me to the bookstore, just give me the pornography, you know, or that kind of thing. Um, or, you know, hire people or whatever, you know, whatever your deal happens to be. Um, that's probably kind of the easiest one to diagnose in a way. Uh, you know, we're, we're spending a lot of money on it. We're spending a lot of time on it. Uh, it's illegal, you know, you name it, uh, it's a little bit easier to diagnose. Um, but the second and third ones, I think, are, are female specialties, and so that's why I'll talk about that a little bit. Uh, I think the second and third piece of, the, of our sex and lust addiction is the romance addiction and then the relationship addiction. And I'm not saying that they are discrete or different, but I think 
that women tend to dress up this disease with either the romance, the relationships, or both. Um, and some men have it, and I'm always a little bit pleased to see that it's not just a gender-specific kind of thing, but I tend to see it more with women. Uh, my particular really low-bottom behavior is in the area of relationship addiction. Um, uh, and um, I don't want to go into the family too much, but I do feel like that uh, I wanted a relationship that felt like what I had with my mom, who was my SNN qualifier. And um, I wanted to feel totally secure. I wanted to feel, you know, that the world was could not get to me, that this person was going to totally protect me, take care of me, meet all my needs, uh, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and the, of course, the, what happened to me was that one relationship wasn't enough, and then two relationships weren't enough. Three weren't enough. And, um, you know, I knew when I was going over that third relationship, whatever that, that boundary, if you can even call it a boundary, uh, that I was in pretty big trouble. But I, I, I always had that as my ideal. You know, that was going to be my ideal, um, that perfect relationship. And, and I know the people that I victimized certainly did the very best they knew how to do that for me. But of course, you know, we can never get enough. So, uh, it was doomed. Um, now the romance addiction, um, I learned about this stuff generally in women's meetings. Um, and I think maybe for some people, I, I hate, I hate to hear people say, I'm a high bada, you know, what kind of a delusional statement is that? But, um, you know, I, I have a sister who I think is an s person who writes romance novels, you know. I know women who read one romance novel a day uh, and masturbate to the romance novel scenarios. And um, I, I wasn't really... You know, when I was uh, a teenager and stuff, I had one particular one that's kind of a historical fiction type of deal that didn't have a lot of descriptive stuff, but it was just sort of the, you know, the longing for the ultimate unavailable man, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I guess, I, I, you know, I, I liked it. It wasn't particularly sexual or arousing or anything like that, but... Um, I just, I can't touch that stuff today. I can't even look at a, a flyleaf of that stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really toxic for me. And um, as many people know, you know, that's a very big piece of the publishing industry. And anything that um, wants people to have more and more and more and more is probably addictive. You know, but it's not just the books. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that magical image. It's that, um, that impossible ideal person, you know, and that kind of thing. And why is that lustful? Well, I think what it does is it, it kind of, it's kind of our ego projecting onto, you know, another person. And again, it's not, it's not totally different from the other pieces of our addiction. Um, but it keeps us really in the, out of being present, you know, that's kind of the, the problem for us. And, you know, some of us have a really, really big need to escape. You know, the bigger the better. And so um, dealing with our ordinary day-to-day -day lives, uh, if some of us are married, our marriages, you know, it's, 
it gets tough sometimes. And, and, you know, yeah, I'd like to take some time off or go somewhere or run away or <laughs> do stuff like that. And fortunately, I have a 45-minute drive to my meeting. And so that's something that I can do. I can say, well, bye, guys. I'm going to my meeting. You know, that's kind of my little uh, oasis, I guess, you know, every week. Um, okay, but getting back to, you know, how do we carry the message? How do we help the female newcomer? Um, I feel very blessed that I did not feel terminally unique as a woman when I came into SA. I looked at these men. There were about four, five of us, four of us, whatever. And um, <clears throat> we each had kind of different terrible manifestations of our illness. One guy was a terrible uh, child. He wasn't a molester. He was a rapist. He was a child rapist, his own child, you know. And, and I would just sit there and just cry as this guy would tell these terrible stories. And, and I'd think, you know, if I weren't crying, I'd kill you. So it's a good thing. You know, it's like I had some feelings that were going on. That was good. And, but I knew, I knew that somehow I wasn't that far away from this guy. I wasn't. I, you know, I, I felt very lucky. You know, it, I, I got that um, reprieve. You know, I, I got that reprieve and still have, you know, today. Um, another guy was a compulsive masturbator, and I couldn't understand why that was such a big issue, but I felt like, well, if you're here, it must be a big issue to you. So um, that was his deal. He wasn't involved with women that much. He was just involved with himself and then had this thing where he'd go to confession, all this crap, you know. So, okay, that's why he was there. Um Another guy was a compulsive adulterer. And I thought, well, I've never been married, but I, and I couldn't be married. I mean, I knew that. That was just out of the question. And then maybe we had a few other people in and out. Um, so, but we all knew we had a really big problem that we couldn't, you know, we couldn't handle on our own. Um, and I, I do feel really lucky that by the time I really seriously went to meetings that were available, that I heard about, that I could go to, I was ready. I had thrown in the towel. I felt very lucky about that. And I don't think in our first little group in Dallas, um, Fort Worth rather, that uh, there any women came to the meeting. I don't think I met a woman in the meeting um, until, um, although I had gone to a meeting earlier, a year ago, a year prior to that, um, in L.A. And there was there were uh, there was another woman at that little meeting that Roy had organized. Actually, I'd come down to meet him and all this kind of stuff. And, um. But uh, what really helps me help the female newcomer is to try to suspend all judgment about what got them there. And that means to, you know, that means that I need to accept my past fully. And I've mostly pretty successfully done that. Um, but I think that if we have stuff that we have that, that is still a big issue for us or that we have a lot of fear around. Like I used to feel really afraid of newcomers that I was going to somehow get, as one of my friends likes to say, struck drunk by being around this person. You know, that really frightened me a lot. Like, oh, or when I was a little kid, we'd say, oh, yeah, cooties, you know, are you going to get your cooties? And um, I don't feel that way very much anymore, you know, and I feel really lucky about that. I don't feel that way. Um, and, uh, you know, and I know a lot of the women feel extremely uncomfortable to come to meetings with men. You know, most most of us are heterosexual, and, you know, here are these guys, and, oh, my God, and some of them, 
you know, are attractive and what are you doing, what are you doing? And um, uh, I will say that being a, a somewhat a protective uh, kind of elder sister uh, uh, kind of female lion type person, um, I am very protective of these women. Um, and I've had friendly guys come up and want to help them. And I really, really can't abide that. I doesn't happen very much. They fortunately in the groups I've ever been in, we don't really have many people, men who come on to the women in a real obvious kind of way. That hasn't really happened, but there's sneaky ways of coming on to the new women. And so I always interpose myself in between this great conversation that some man with under a year is having with this woman. And, um, and I just say, look, uh, you need to leave. You need to go talk to a man. Goodbye. And, um, some people find that very abrupt and, um, I just feel very protective. (laughs) And, um, I will say this in our group, now, I belong to the best group in the whole wide world, which is, of course, what we all should say about our home group, of the Federal Way Fellowship on Saturday night at 7.30. If you're ever in King County, Washington, near Seattle, come see us. Um, anyway, um, I'm almost losing my train of thought here. Um, and how are we doing on time? Wait, it's still okay? Okay. Okay. Um, ah, we had people who were kind of chronically flirting. And this was really getting my goat in a real big way. And uh, and it was like, it was playful. It was kind of, hey, buddy, you know, the elbow and the, and the side and this kind of stuff. And, man, I did not like that. I thought that that was kind of thinly veiled sexual behavior. Um, not horrible, just not really appropriate for an essay meeting and for fellowship. And I sat there and I thought, what am I going to do about this? So I talked about it, you know, with my sponsor. I believe I did. I hope I did. And um, what happened was we had a group inventory and we inventoried that conduct. And I was able to say to the person in a loving way who I felt was doing a lot of it, who happened to be a woman, um, I just don't think that's right. I don't think we should be teasing and joshing and a lot of physical contact. And I mean, sometimes the whole person would put their whole body against the other person, you know, all in fun. And then the, well, I'm kind of lonely. Well, I hate to say this, but if you're really lonely and you really need contact, why don't you get a pet? You know, get a dog. I mean, that's what I finally did. Uh, After about four years of sobriety, I was so darn lonely. um, I got a dog. And uh, I got to pet the dog and hold the dog, and I wasn't inappropriate with that dog. And, and uh, you know, um, women who have children, of course, d- usually are dying for contact to cease or at least diminish a little bit, you know. And I know today I don't feel that way anymore. But um, anyway, that's kind of how uh, we dealt with that. Um, you know, we've had a lot of, uh, just a minute, let me take a We've had a lot of controversy and confusion and upset and stuff about how clear do we want to be about our sobriety definition, either in print or, you know, with newcomers or whatever. And everything that we do, I think, you know, our primary purpose is to help the sexaholic who still suffers, who may be new or may not be new, depending. Um, and I, 
I'm not saying that I, I downpedal or soft pedal the sobriety definition, but I always remember how resistant I was to it. And so I try to, I don't think I hedge, but I try to let people know that we just want them to come and see, see what this might be like a day at a time. And uh, I don't tell them you can only have sex when you're married, and maybe they've been married six times or not at all. Um, and I recently, I had a really wonderful experience sponsoring a woman who was a lesbian. Not only that, she was a sex offender. And she did not feel very part of, you can be sure of that. And unfortunately, I think part of that not that feeling not a part of came from her a big part came from her addiction, uh, which I don't really know if that, uh, if that was ever really lifted for very long. I'm not, I'm just not really sure, but I always encourage, I said, well, look, how's it today? How is it today being absent? Well, it's not too bad. Um, and she said, well, what am I going to do when, you know, when I would say that all the time, what is going to happen when I meet my husband you know, I was always sure it would ha he'd have a name on him, husband, you know. So I know, I know this was the one, and I didn't have to worry or try to work my program anymore. It would just be the right one, and, you know, we would sail off into the sunset and stuff. And, you know, in the early days, the sunset was out of the program. And so, <laughs> so um, you know, I'd always say, well, why don't we cross that bridge when we come to it? And... um because that's kind of how I had to deal with it. I had to deal with it in little, little bitty steps, you know. Okay, well, and I remember my, I was so addicted to this, to this person that I, you know, that who dumped me, basically, who dumped me when I came in. And I had this wonderful sponsor who had this black belt in Alan. She was great. And she'd say, we're not going to call him today. I'd say, Okay. You know, and it was like I had to make a contract on a daily basis not to call this person. And, you know, because calling was getting it started again, you know, reigniting. And, and I had a few experiences in very early baby sobriety where, you know, I thought, well, let me make an amends. You know, let me write that letter, you know, and say, oh, I'm so sorry for how I exploited you and all this kind of stuff. And they're, they're like, come see me anytime. And, and no, 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 no. So, you know, my sponsor read me like a book and maybe she'd never even sponsored a sex act before and I don't even think she was one either but she knew what to do so um you know just to really break it down into those daily hourly minute by minute uh you know how do we get through this very early period how do we not call that person that we're that we feel like uh the world you know god cannot possibly do it i must you know that was my Philosophy. I wanted to do that. That was how I was with people. I didn't know any better. I, I couldn't do it any differently on my own. So we did a lot of praying. We did a lot of writing, you know, and, and of course I'd come, hello, do you want to listen to me dump? No, she never wanted to listen to me dump. She wanted to hear what I had to write and then I would, you know, call back and then I, and then that mood had passed. And so, that was another thing that, you know, was terrifically helpful to me. And, um, you know, uh, there's also a good pamphlet out there about um, 
how we help our groups recover, how our groups, you know, the group pamphlet, whatever it's called. And, um, you know, it talks about allowing the newcomer self-pity is very dangerous. Well, the old, the older volumes that are available that may not be conference approved in AA talk about, you know, self-pity is very normal. And so I indulge a certain amount of self-pity with, with the newcomers. I said, yeah, I really understand. I understand how that feels to be lonely and it's time to wrap up. And, (laughs) and, um, you know, let's, let's focus on something. What, what are we planning today? And to really make, you know, make that plan into look sometimes a morning, an afternoon, and an evening plan. So I hope that um, is helpful to whoever's listening to this. And thank you very much. I'm Sylvia, and I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. Hi, Sylvia. And by the grace of God and my friends in this room, I've been sexually sober since May 10th, 1983, and for that I'm never sufficiently grateful. Um, Women newcomers, that's, I, I do more telephone conversation with women newcomers than I do at home because uh, women don't come very often. It's hard to, uh, and when they do, I think that probably one of the things that happens is that I give them too much at one time and they can't digest it. Uh, there's always the fear with women. Uh, Catherine talked on this about um, having to give up a relationship or not being able to ever have sex again Uh how how do I live like that? That's just so uh, scary. Well, you know, I was married, but I didn't want to have sex with my husband. I hated him. So, I mean, I, I, I thought it was really easier to not have to have sex than to have sex with somebody you didn't like. And, uh, and, and then to, be, uh, to not be able to go out and um, have my boyfriend, that was the hard thing. I did it like Catherine said, one day at a time, and there were many days that I... Uh, uh, in the beginning, I can remember that I met him for lunch just before an SA meeting. <laughs> I would meet him for lunch, have lunch, and go to the SA meeting. And I would do that knowing that I had to go to that SA meeting so I wouldn't do anything else. And uh, <clears throat> so I backed away slowly. And uh, like many steps, at, uh, small, small steps at a time. And um, what I did when I did that, though, was I would pray before I would go, God, help me see what I need to see in this relationship. And invariably, I saw something that was like, oh, this is a little bit insane. <laughs> and, and I would think about that. And then the next time I think, oh, well, yeah, I can see that I'm not really too sane here either. So gradually I was able to diminish doing that, but I always scheduled it around my meetings. And um, Talking to a woman newcomer, though, I, I always like to talk about the, the fact of how hard it was to give up that relationship, how um, um, Catherine was talking about it, looking for the person that's going to fill me up, that's that that's my story. I always thought that this person was going to make me whole. See, I was always going to be Dale Evans, and Roy Rogers was going to be out there on his horse, and we were going to, Champion and I, we were going to ride off together and be happy forever. Some of you are too young for that, you know, <laughs> but, but those of us who've uh, been around a little while know that uh, I was fortunate in the beginning that I had uh, a man in the program with me who uh, had the same fantasy. 
So uh, we were good uh, co-sponsors for each other in the first three years of our program because uh, that was his exact same same fantasy. He was going to be Dale Evans and (laughs) ride (laughs) off into the wild with Roy Rogers. So um, that worked real good. Um, However, I did have a good sponsor when I started, too, and that's the other thing is it's important to have a good sponsor. And um, my sponsor was uh, uh, from another program, and um, she had dealt with her sexual addiction issues. In fact, she was going to come to an SA meeting once because she knew she had those issues. And um, a friend of ours told her she didn't belong because he asked her a lot of questions, and she wasn't acting out anymore, so he told her she didn't belong. But uh, we talked about it, and she, and, and she dealt with hers through her other programs, her other 12 steps, and, uh, and, and was able to guide me in doing the same thing. Uh, I needed the fellowship, and uh, she was able to do it the other way. But she was a good, strong um, guide for me in my steps. And um, <clears throat> we frequently have women who come, but most of them go. And uh, I think that the fear um, is so tremendous for women about having to live alone. Our, our uh, male dependency is really strong. And I, uh, I hear them and see them, and usually that's what happens is it's a relationship. I believe that um, they were talking earlier about putting together a women's pamphlet so on, on uh, to the newcomers. So I think that maybe um, Marnie might like you to give her some input. We're talking to her about doing something on that subject. And uh, newcomers, women newcomers, though, um, we're always in a lot of pain and we're always backing off from a relationship, I think. A relationship addiction, to me, is what women always see. I know when I got here, it was love. I wanted to. I wanted somebody to love me. I thought, and and I thought that every uh, affair that I had was love. Even if I had three going at one time, I was in love with all three of them. And um, so, love is always. I mean, you know, I have to be in love in order for it to be all right. Flirting also was a big thing for me. I flirted a lot, and flirting was a high for me. So uh, to me, it's important to share my experience with that newcomer about what it was like. But today, uh, I don't have to do those things, and I'm really grateful for that. I'm um, extremely grateful to um, to be here and to see women. And in Oklahoma City, we don't have... Um, we have three sober women, and uh, we had two. We have three women who are coming at this time besides us three. So we have three newcomers at this particular moment. However, I think one of them this past week decided that a relationship was more important, and that's that's the pattern in Oklahoma City. And the uh, the other two are still working on it, and we'll see what happens with them. I'm always I'm all I, I get to the point myself. I think where I'm hesitant to get close to them. And so I always have a little bit of a distance, and I, 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 I'm sorry about that because I think that, that distance uh, is harmful. But if I, I'm, I'm also uh, enough of a codependent person that if I don't have that distance, 
then I lock into them too hard. And, and it's, it's hard to be, uh, to release and love, and it's hard to not hold too tightly. And I never am sure whether it's that I release too much or I hold too tightly, but I always think I'm at fault. It's always my fault. So I have a really good sponsor who told me, if this person comes to the program and uh, and does the program, then you're one of six persons who told her. And it's not your fault that she's recovering. If she doesn't come and she doesn't stay and you've told her about it, you're just one of the first six persons to tell her and she's not ready yet. And she'll hear it someday. So I have to keep in mind that people have to hear it and they have to be ready. And it's not my fault, not my responsibility. All I can do is share my experience, strength, and hope and um, carry the message. And if they're ready, they'll be there. If they're not, I'm one of the first people to have told them about it. And um, um, I have an experience that has really demonstrated that to me. And it's uh, to me, and it's, it's not with female, it's with a male. But I, I one time several years ago, decided to tell my minister about my program. And so my minister uh, kept telling me, Oh, Sylvia, I am so proud of you, and patting me on the back and the shoulder. Oh, I'm so proud of you. And I was like, Oh, God, I wish I'd never told him. And so two years after that, I found out from another, from a, uh, another person that... Um, uh, he had left his church previously because he had a tendency to touch women. <laughs> and then I heard just recently, uh, this past few months, his son is in our program. And I'm like, oh, well, now I know why I told him. Now, I don't know whether, I don't know anything about this person, but you know, that mess, that I, I was one of however many people to give a message to somebody where it may have gone on some... I don't know. I don't know how God used that. But I believe that it's not my fault and it's not my responsibility. And all I can do is tell my story and um, share my experience and help a person work their steps on it because without the steps, there is no recovery. And that's my job. My job is not to carry the person, but to carry the message and to teach you how I work the steps and let you learn from other people as well as me on how to work those steps. And uh, I'm grateful to be here. And I'm going to give Marnie a few minutes here now. Thanks. My name's Marnie. I'm a grateful recovering sexaholic. And by the grace of God and the fellowship of this program, I've been sober since August the 8th, 1992. I feel like a newcomer compared to these ladies. Um, in some ways, I think I am a newcomer in this program because while I've learned to stay sober, I'm this part of my story, but it's an honesty program, and I, I will tell you, I was one of those people, Catherine, who said and truly believed I cannot go to meetings with men. Um, when I came into the program, I entered recovery in 1991, I spent a hellacious year getting sober and staying sober from an extramarital relationship, one of many, many, but this was um, extraordinarily enmeshed and, and very dependent uh, with another sexaholic um, who lived next door. 
So it was just really a tough relationship, and it took me a year to to get rid of that relationship. Um, the first probably nine months of that year, I didn't go to any meetings at all. Kept telling my therapist, "Won't go to meetings. Won't go to meetings. Nope, nope, nope. Not going to meetings." Um, and then something <clears throat> happened, and that's a long story, but that I realized I needed to go to meetings. I walked into my first essay meeting in Nashville, Tennessee, and it was me and probably thirty men. Uh, we're so blessed in Nashville to have just wealths and wealths of recovery. It's, you know, if you have to be a sex addict, I'm so thankful that God put me in Nashville because there, there's just awesome recovery there. And at the point that I came in, there was one other woman who was in the program, um, and we never we didn't go to the same meetings. It just happened that way. And I was way too stubborn to ask for help, so I wouldn't call her and say, you know, I hear that you're a woman and you're in this program and you need help, and I wouldn't do that. Um, I just wasn't that far along. <clears throat> and I knew for me that I could not stay there. Um, for me, a huge part of, of my lust alcoholism is a power thing. It's that incredible desire to be lusted after. I wanted to, and you know, and of course was, was sick enough and, and narcissistic enough to think that I really did this, you know, to be able to walk into a room, you know, at a party or, or any kind of social function or an essay meeting and check out all of these men sexaholics and think, hmm, I'll pick you. Now, I could have you. And I, would very, I was very predatory in my addiction. Um, and I just knew for me that I could not do that. And so for a period of time did not go to, to essay meetings. Um, For me, a huge part of this disease, as as these ladies mentioned, was also very being very flirtatious, being very very touchy, um, and being very. I always thought it was southern, you know. Oh, hey, honey, how you doing? Oh, well, sweetie, you know, and use those kinds of terms. And I just thought that's part of my personality. I'm just all bubbly, and I'm just all, you know, a flaming extrovert, and that's just me. And it took me much longer than my sobriety date. It probably took me another couple of years at least to realize, no, that's not just me. That's sexaholism manifesting itself in me. Um, that those kinds of behaviors were not appropriate. And and I've learned most of the time, I certainly don't do this perfectly, but that I can be an extrovert without being flirtatious. Um, so for for me, being in meetings with men was difficult in the beginning. I'm so thankful now to have men in the meetings. Again, in Nashville, we're very lucky. We have a very strong women's essay program and have um, two meetings a week that are women only. And probably there are 10 or 12 women who routinely pretty much come to those meetings. And that's a wonderful blessing. And that we're in a position that helps the newcomer. We can be able to say, you know, if you're afraid about going to a general meeting, go to Wednesday afternoon or evening or um, Friday evening for a women's only meeting. That kind of helps get them in the door. Where you are, there may not be that. Um, for me, and there wasn't that for me in the beginning, I had to learn to go to a meeting with extraordinarily strict boundaries. 
And Catherine talked about that. I didn't know a boundary. I wouldn't have known a boundary if it bit me. There were no boundaries going up in my family. So this was, I was clueless about this. But my therapist and my sponsor, and like Sylvia, my sponsor, in fact, she's been my sponsor from, from the beginning of this program and still is, um, is a sexaholic, but also an alcoholic. And she recovered from her sexual addiction one day at a time and is still through her alcoholism recovery. Um, but she really coached me on how to go to meetings. And for me in the beginning, that was, I go in there, I don't look at any people, I sit down, I physically move my chair to not be just right next to a man because I didn't trust myself. It wasn't that I didn't trust them, it was that I didn't trust me. Um, I made a firm boundary. I will not take any man's phone number. I will not give my phone number to any man. I will not engage in any conversation with a man after a meeting. I will go and listen and hear experience, strength, and hope, share if I needed to, and then I would leave. And in the beginning, um, few years of the program, I had to do that. And that was very helpful for me because I could hear what I needed to hear and still stay safe and call her when I got home. Um, it's been a real gift to me at this point to be able to have safe friendships with men in the program now but I didn't know what that was. I think as women, we need to be careful also about what we wear to meetings. I had a sponsee um, recently in the summer who came to a meeting. It was the summertime, and it was very hot in the summer, um, dressed really inappropriately. And I had to say to her, this isn't going to cut it. This isn't fair, number one. This seems, in my experience, dressing like that was an exhibition of my own sexaholism, and it can be a trigger for these men, and that's not fair. So I think we need to be really careful about what we wear. And it's more, for me, it wasn't as much what I wore. I mean, I had a few things that, that you know, were wildly inappropriate, that were exhibitionistic in my acting out days. But it was how I, just how I moved and how, how I wore things that, that maybe were okay, you know, on somebody else. Um... I know for me, within the first year of the program, I discovered, it just kind of happened this way, I didn't own any piece of clothing that I had owned a year before. For one thing, for me, some, you know, I would look at that red skirt that wasn't particularly inappropriate, but boy, it reminded me. It would bring into my mind some of the euphoric, euphoric recall of some things I had done in that particular outfit. Um, so that was that's just been a part of my story. I think for those of us who are married and coming into the program, and I was, I had been, actually I had lost one marriage to my sexaholism, and I was in the middle of my second marriage, and it was major on the rocks. And like Sylvia and Catherine, I knew that this man with whom I was having an affair was my savior. You know, he was my knight in shining armor, um, very much a relationship addict, and that he is the one with whom I should ride off into the sunset. And for me, uh, my therapist and then my sponsor helped me to realize, because I was so racked with angst over, do I leave my husband and try to ride off in the sunset with this guy? And he was perfectly willing, though he was married, also had children. Um, you know, do I stay? I hated my husband also. We were not particularly sexual. He was like, you're a sex addict? I can't... <laughs> Where, you know, I sure don't see this, because he didn't. Um, 
you know, back and forth and just all this just inner turmoil over what do I do. And I was helped to realize that my responsibility, and again, this is just my experience, was to stay, number one, sober, and then emotionally present in my marriage. And my therapist and my sponsor had me contract with them. If I would stay sober and emotionally present in my marriage for one year, then if I decided that I was going to ride off in the sunset with, you know, honey boy, that have at it. And it was just amazing what Sylvia is saying. And I prayed every day through that year, God, make me willing to be willing to do what you're leading me to do. And I saw all the sickness in this other relationship. I mean, I was involved with a sexaholic. Um, you know, and again, this was that hellacious year before I got sober. I'm not saying I was involved with him afterwards. Um, but to me, that was a really helpful advice of just one day at a time, don't worry about what if and what's going to happen with him, to just stay sober today and try to be emotionally present in my marriage. I think for for many women, though, I'm seeing um, women come in the program in Nashville, mostly younger women, not always, for whom pornography and cyber sex and chronic masturbation are a genuine problem. By the grace of God, that has not been my experience particularly, um, but I'm seeing that in many of the women who are coming in. I think partially it's maybe a cultural thing that um, the younger women who are growing up are growing up in such a media-saturated culture that they see so many more things um, in, in a computer culture, different from, from the way I did. I'm a little bit computer illiterate. I do well to check my email. Um, but that it's a very serious problem for them. So as Catherine well said, I think we need to suspend any judgments about what got a woman into SA. Um, and and take her wherever she is and help her see that working the steps will work. I think for newcomers, they need to be told honestly that the withdrawal from this disease is pure hell. Is pure hell. Um, again, in that year, I would no one really told me how bad that was going to be, and I would just think this is too much. I can't do it and I didn't have any tools yet because I refused to go to meetings that would really help me. Um, but when I got serious about, about sobriety, there literally were days that I would set my timer on the kitchen stove for five minutes at a time. I will not call him for five minutes. And I would think, okay, for five minutes I can do this. And the timer would go off, and I would set it again. And sometimes it'd take four or five times of the five minutes until that feeling would pass. And, and then I was able to, you know, do whatever I was going to do. And I'd have a brief for maybe a couple hours. And then this would start again. I remember there was one day that I literally, like a child, which is what I was, laid on my floor in the den and kicked and screamed and cried my heart out, saying, I do not think I can live without this person. God help me, and he did. He did. Um, another thing that, that helped me so much as a newcomer, again, I, 
I was so intellectual and just trying to figure all this out, you know, and, and, you know, him, my husband versus him and, you know, this program versus that program and all of that kind of thing. My sponsor kept saying, Marnie, just do the next right thing. And I would hear her voice saying that and I would think, what is the next right thing? Hmm. I think put that load of laundry in the washer. Hmm. What is the next right thing? I think feed the dog. I think it's to go pick up my children from preschool. It's that time. Um, very, very specific little bitty things that on the surface didn't seem like they had anything to do with sex addiction. But that's what kept me sober was focusing on the very much here and now. What do I do right now? And to make a commitment to call my sponsor every day. I would encourage y'all, because you're here, you at least know about the program, to be willing to reach out to new women who are coming and to just share your experience, strength, and hope. Um, my experience is there is a lack of females in the program with long-term sobriety who have enough time to sponsor other people. I don't know if y'all are the way that I am, but I just kind of feel overwhelmed sometimes at the pain out there that is in women. And it helps me, too, to realize that, that God can do for them without me. If I've done, you know, if I'm as busy as I can be and need to take care of myself and to, to tell a woman, you know, I'm very sorry, I'll be glad to listen to you, but I can't make the commitment to sponsor you at this point. I'm just overwhelmed to be able to let her go and to realize that God will give her what she needs if she's sincerely seeking. But I encourage you to just network with each other, that it's fine to say you know, I've only got three months of sobriety, but I'm willing to be an accountability partner with you. We can call each other every day. We can say, you know, let's go to meetings together, or I'll call you from Podunk and you call me from Outer Mongolia and we'll say, did you go to your meeting this week? And to help each other in that way, at least, and be willing to share the experience, strength, and hope of the program. I'm glad to see more women come in. Thanks. I think we're supposed to close with the third step prayer. And uh, so let's uh, get out in the room and. Uh... I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of the Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.